Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Father, we're so thankful when we feel overwhelmed and absolutely helpless in broken situations like we're seeing play out right now, that we can right now pause and and not find ourselves helpless anymore. Jesus, we appeal to you. Father, we're appealing to your heart. Holy Spirit, we're asking that you'd move and intervene. God, have mercy in this situation. God, protect the lives of individuals who are caught in the crossfire of this situation, of this war. God, we pray that you'd move in the hearts of Russian citizens and Russian soldiers, that you would break out through your spirit uh, an incredible work in the lives of people. Jesus, that you would reveal yourselves in dreams and visions to these people. God, that you turn their hearts. There is a a victim and a villain in this story. Our our villain is an enemy that's, that's thousands of years in the works fighting against humanity. Jesus, we recognize that this this situation is animated by the great enemy who began his conflict and war in heaven, and when it failed, brought it to earth. And so we pray that you would bind that enemy and that you'd stop his work right now in this situation. But God, we don't demonize just Russian people. We pray today, God, that you'd move in their lives. God, we pray for mercy and compassion on those in Ukraine. God, we pray that you would intervene powerfully to protect people, powerfully to provide for people. God, we pray for men and women who are national government leaders all around the globe, that they would rise right now. God, that you'd give them courage. God, turn the tides, we pray. God, we're so thankful we turn towards someone who we can entrust nations to, but we turn to someone also who we believe is interested in the the fine details of our lives, who knows the number of hairs on our head. Father, we thank you for your gentle care for us. And God, today with a heavy heart, we, we gather thinking of those who are our own family who are in harm's way. But God, we also, for many, we gather with a heavy heart for just life, for the tension of the now and not yet, of longing to be with you where things are made right and we are made whole, but not finding ourselves there yet. And so we pray, Jesus, today for a word that encourages us. Jesus, for for words from you that would breathe life in us again. And so, Jesus, we turn your direction as we open Scripture and ask that you'd speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll ask Dave House if he would come and read this morning's passage to us. Uh, Dave's one of the elders here at the church, and so it's important for me uh, that you would know who all these elders are as they serve the church and pray and lead the church together as a team. And so Dave's going to read to you from Mark chapter 12. Okay. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. 
And the second like it is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the, <clears throat> excuse me, the scribe said to him, well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth. For there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is more than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. Thank you. In 1804, a German Lutheran family out in a small town that sat against this picturesque lake way down in the south of the country in the region of Bavaria, they, they welcomed the second of seven children, a young baby boy. He was obviously young, most babies are, but a baby boy. His name was Ludwig. Ludwig Feuerbach. It's quite the name. Ludwig's father was a brilliant man who worked in the judicial system. Uh, he was also a deeply religious man who found himself in positions of power both in the church and also out in the public specter or sector. Uh, he was, unfortunately though, Ludwig's father was a, a very intense uh, temperament is what he carried. He was a, a, a tyrannical man is what his children would refer to him as later. In fact, his kids would rename him, give him the nickname around the house, probably not to his face, but around the house they'd refer to him as uh, Vesuvius, which, if you know your history, it was the, the most deadly volcano that ever erupted in Europe. And that's how they saw their father, the deeply religious, super brilliant man who was very, very volatile, though. And some historians would suggest, because of that experience in their home, that would explain why this man's children would all, in the end, seem to leave their faith and head in different directions away from the church. But Ludwig, the baby that was born, the young baby, uh, as he grew up, he had deep interest, at least as an early teen, in being a part of the church in his future. That's what he thought his vocation would be. And so at the age of 16, he sought out a local rabbi, a part of a synagogue, who would teach him Hebrew so that he could read the Old Testament scriptures in Hebrew. And, and then he would go off to college, and it was in college that something clearly changed in young Ludwig's life, where all of a sudden he found himself intentionally distancing himself from the church and instead grouping together himself with another group of individuals who believed that the Western culture, and particularly Christianity, needed to be superseded. It needed by necessity to die out and to be viewed as archaic and go away completely in order for society to move forward. That's really what they believed. Ludwig became so passionate about doing away with religion, believing that it was a key to the progress of a scientific society of the future. And these young men, they wanted to spearhead a movement away from the church in the Western hemisphere of the world. They, they wanted to sever the connection that the Western world had with Christianity. And this man Ludwig's contribution to that movement was an anti-theist book that people refer to as his crowning work or his masterwork. It's called The Essence of Christianity. You may have heard of the book, The Essence of Christianity. It's a book that I read over the past two weeks, knowing that we are headed to this passage as I was kind of beginning to prepare and think through this passage, because his book is a very harsh criticism of religion and was lauded instantly back in that cultural moment in time in the 1840s 
It was instantly lauded as a success. It, it was historians who referred to it as bursting onto the scene, and I quote, like a bombshell on the German intellectual scene in the early 1840s. Another historian wrote that it became like a Bible to a group of revolutionary thinkers. The influence of his work was felt by key individuals that you'd probably recognize their names, uh, former Christian Charles Darwin, Karl Marx, Sigmund Freud, even Friedrich Nietzsche himself, all credited this man's work with being deeply influential in, in what their work would look like. It was so largely influential, this book was, the essence of Christianity and leading Europe into a post-Christian era that it still finds itself into, in today. So the guy's book, uh, Feuerbach, his book emphatically claims that the essence of religion is adaptation, that that's at the center of what religion is. It's just adaptation. And that the essence of good theology, he says, is anthropology. If you want to know how to think about God and study God, you just need to study man. And he said that the essence of Christianity, yes, it's adaptation. Yes, it's sociology. It's, it's anthropology. But what he says is the essence of Christianity is contradiction. Here's what he means in what he writes in his book. His assertion was that adaptation was the essence of Christianity and every other religion, because really what he's claiming is that it was just a made-up story, and the response that was developed over time to meet human needs, that that's how the Christian story began, and that's how it grew. And unfortunately, he wrote these things between, before modern archaeology was beginning to be developed in the Bible lands, the lands of Israel and its surrounding nations. It happened before Israel was rebirthed as a nation. It happened before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls, in combination with what archaeology has found, has proven that we know that what we have hasn't changed. This is the same as the ancient texts that were found. But we also know that what we have is true because of the prophetic nature of this text. You see, he said all religions are the same in that they're all adaptation, but Christianity stands apart to be something so very different. But he, unfortunately, didn't see it that way. But then he said that if you want to understand good theology, then really all you need to do is study anthropology because the God that we formed, we formed in the image of everything that we've longed to be. He would say that ancient religions basically made deities that would deify their passions and justify them living in those passions. It's gods of war because we're aggressive people so that we can go to war and call it worship. It's gods of lust, deifications of lust, so that we can participate in gross sexual practices and call it worship. And that's what ancient religions were doing. And then he said everything changed with Christianity where it flipped it on its head and said instead, let's make what, let's make a God out of what humanity should be. And let's worship him not just with indulgence, but instead we'll worship him with self-denial. And that's how the Christian movement began, he said. It was never God creating man in his image. It was man, and I quote, creating God in their own image. He wrote it this way. He says, God is the existence corresponding to my wishes and my feelings. So in the end, this man, Feuerbach, he would emphatically state that the essence of Christianity is therefore just another adaptation and that this one, Christianity, is itself the worst of all because it's a contradiction. He says the essence of Christianity is a contradiction because faith and love, he says, are the grand contradiction within all of human history. Now, what does he mean they're a contradiction, faith and love? 
Because we know that those are benchmarks of a Christian movement. We know that those are things that the scriptures teach us ought to be a part of each of our lives if we're followers of Jesus. Faith and love. Well, in his book, he would say that love is something that's instinctive, whereas he would say, based on his observation of the world, faith is something that's destructive. It produces instead of, uh, it produces instead of love that would push you, compel you towards people. It would instead produce condemnation and hatred towards the world. Now, you should know many are critical of this man's, uh, Atheism, because it, it's, it contradicts itself. His atheism is super inconsistent. And one of the ways it's inconsistent is that he says that love is something that was natural. He claims that love is something that's instinctive. But when you observe a broken world, you don't really find that that's true, do you? You find instead survival of the fittest is what's natural in a broken world. It's what we're seeing play out right now in the news, isn't it? You may have just started reading this week about the, the, the idea, the concept that's been written about quite a bit this week of real politic. That's what's instinctive. We're seeing it play out in real time where leaders of the world are choosing to respond to human tragedy and an unnecessary war, where they're choosing to respond void of compassion instead with self-preservation at the expense of extermination of other people. And we have a modern term for it. We call it real politic. And many are praising this as the right global response to choose intentionally to set aside morality, to set aside ideology about what's right and wrong in this situation, or or the right thing to do, or about innocent people caught in the middle of this. You set all of that in the side in the name of preservation of power and not tipping the scales in someone else's favor, in in favor of self-preservation. And while some are praising that line of thought, others won't publicly, but they'll go to a gas pump in the next couple of weeks, and they'll vent their anger at the fuel pumps, and they'll stomp their foot and say, this should not be affecting me. This is wrong. This is terrible. I shouldn't be bothered by this. This is someone else's problem. That's what exists inside the hearts of all of us. For this guy, Feuerbach, he says, love is instinctive, but faith is destructive because it produces destruction in our world. He said, and I quote, faith is the opposite of love. Faith necessarily passes into, it morphs into hatred, hatred into persecution then of those who do not believe what you believe. And I quote again, it lies in the nature of faith that it is indifferent to moral duties, that it sacrifices the love of man to honor God. For this man, his experience was when he interacted with Christians, he found that they had a love for God that was vertical, but they were void of love for humanity that would have been horizontal. Instead, what he found was hatred, and that rather than engaging with people with love, that he felt that they were engaging with people with a sword. Unfortunately, his book was very influential in the rise of atheism in Europe and largely influential in leading the Western world into the post-Christian era. We still find a reality that's present around us. But our question has to be, but is the guy right? Is the essence of Christianity really a contradiction? Is it really meant to be that it, it's, it's leaving us united with a loving father and also with a deep-seated hatred towards a broken world around us? towards a broken society, towards broken people. Is that really the work of of the Christian movement? Is that really the byproduct of choosing to follow Jesus? Is that I'm deeply connected in love with God and have a deep-seated hatred and disdain for the world around me? I have a really straightforward message for us today. 
because I just want to discuss with you, how does Jesus define the essence of Christianity? Because that's what Jesus does in our passage today. Remember, our passage finds itself right in the middle of Passover week. This would be where the nation was regathering in the city of Jerusalem in commemoration, remembering what God had done to deliver them, but also in anticipation of what God would do in the future to deliver them, that he would hear their prayer and send a deliverer again. And in the middle of that week where we find this moment is in the middle of the inspection of lambs inside the temple, and Jesus is inside the temple. And as we looked at last week, he's inspected by the religious leaders. They question him in so many different areas uh, about all these different facets of who he is. And in the end, rather than pronouncing that he, they had found fault in him, they pronounce him clean. They find no fault and they quit their inspection. It, we talked last week how it's this incredible moment where things seem out of control and yet are very much in control for God, where the very ones who came to condemn Jesus in the end confirmed him that he was a good, suitable sacrifice, the Lamb of God who'd take away the sin of the world. They didn't come asking honest questions at all, though. If you have a teenager living in your home, then, then you know this experientially, probably presently. You know the difference between asking a question and being questioned. I have littles in my home, and so they're still naive enough to think that, that I hold the answers to all of their questions, so they ask me questions assuming that I have a suitable answer for that question. I know tides will turn, though. I know in my future what I'm set up for. I know my kids will not come to ask me a question assuming I have an answer that's suitable. They're going to come questioning me because they don't believe that I have an answer that's logical or rational or is any way, in any way, shape, or form something that they're interested in hearing. They'll push back. They'll question. And that's what they do here with Jesus. This is what they do with him where they question his authority. You remember his integrity, his theology, and even his deity. And right in the middle of all of that, is the story we just found in chapter 12, verse 28, where the man comes and says, Jesus, what is the first? What's the foremost, maybe your Bible says, first in importance, what is the greatest commandment of all? The question's unique in at least two ways. The question's unique because of who asked it and why he asked it. The who in asking it is a scribe. It tells you a scribe comes to Jesus asking this thing. He's an expert in explaining the law. You have to think of them as maybe half theologian, half lawyer, where they're taking the hundreds of Old Testament laws, and their job was to break them down and list every possible implication and meaning of those commands. There's 613 commands in the Old Testament, 248 are positive ones, and 365, one for every day of the year, is a negative one. And in addition to that, they had 1,500 commands in their in their rabbinic writings that they observed and that they held, unfortunately, errantly held in equal weight and authority as they did to the Old Testament scriptures. And so their job was to study these things, to classify and to categorize these things, and then to teach these things. So the, the idea of commandments, this was the guy's life and his work. But he comes saying, Jesus, which is the greatest? The biggest, the most important of the hundreds of rules and expectations of God, the commandments, can you sum it up for me? And you should know, historians tell us that half of his peers, the scribes in this era in the first century, half of them believed that it was sacrifice, was the greatest, the most important thing. And others believed that obedience to Jewish rituals, that circumcision, observing of Sabbath, that that was the most important. So they were split. Both of them placing a heavy weight and yoke on the people, though, that you have to do this. 
If you want to follow God, if you want to please him, if you want to know what it's all about, then you have to feel the pressure of this. You see, the first thing that was unique was who asked it. The second thing was why. Because in contrast maybe to the disingenuine questions and challenges that were hurled Jesus' way, this arguably, by many scholars, is believed to be maybe a genuine one. It comes from a sincere heart in contrast to the other ones that came before it. And I believe that this question is so much larger than we just read on page. Print on page in English, we just read it as, what's the first commandment, the greatest commandment? Okay, what's the big deal? But what he's asking, though, he's really asking Jesus to sum it up. Jesus, take all of the Torah, all of the Old Testament, now summarize it. What's the point of God's revealed revelation, his revealed heart for the world, his revealed word to the world? What's the point of it all? That's what they're asking. They're asking Jesus, what's the core message? What's at the center? What really matters? What's most important? What's the Bible all about is maybe how we'd say it. What's God really after might be how we'd say it. What does God want from me? What's the point of it all? What's the meaning of life? What's the essence of God's message? He's asking the question, not just a question. This is the question. What is the essence of Christianity? Essence. Remember years ago, I was drinking way too much soda, and my wife uh, ended up showing me a video of someone who put Coca-Cola in a, in, a, in a pan on a stove and then just boiled it down, and all that remained was a lot of sugar. Because the essence of Coke is ultimately sugar. The one thing that if it was removed, the thing itself could not exist with Coke is sugar. Without sugar, Coke doesn't exist. But what is the thing within Christianity? What is the essence of it? What's the thing, the one thing that if it was removed, there'd really be nothing left at all because it is the essence, the core of it all? Well, I mean, at, at the core of it all, it was undoubtedly Peter's declaration about Jesus, right? His statement. The high point of Mark's gospel, the turning point in the story is when he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Clearly, that's an important part because if you don't believe that, that he's the Christ, the son of the living God, well, then you won't believe anything else about what the Christian message tells me about why Jesus came and what Jesus accomplished at a cross and, and with an empty grave. Clearly, that's a centerpiece of it, but can we boil it down further than that? Can we boil it down deeper than just all that Jesus did and accomplished? Is there one thing that if it was removed, that the whole of the thing would cease to exist without it? What's the essence of Christianity? What's the greatest commandment? This is not a new topic of conversation you might remember in the Old Testament. In fact, it's going to pop up on the screen for you that Micah, the prophet, he would boil down all of God's commands and requirements to something simple and concise. He would explain to you, this is what God desires. Micah chapter 6, Micah chapter 6, beginning in verse 6, he says, What or with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give even my firstborn? For my sin, my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul. Here's what the prophet answers. He says, he's told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. It's not a new topic of conversation. The prophets of old said what God desires, what, what this is all about is justice and mercy and humility. It's not just not a new topic, it was the topic of debate in Jesus' day. 
In fact, there's a story that I love that comes out of ancient uh, rabbinic writings, the Talmud specifically, this collection of rabbinic writings from a generation before Jesus. And it tells the story of two leading rabbis, Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shema, who were approached by an outsider out of the nation of Israel, a Gentile. And the Gentile approaches them, stands on one foot, and says, while I stand on one foot, tell me the whole of the Torah. He's asking them to do for him what Jesus is being asked to do here. Would you summarize the whole thing while I balance on one leg? The idea is you don't have long, because I might lose it and go over, so make it quick. Well, the story goes that when he first approached Rabbi Hillel, this brilliant rabbi who's the president of the Sanhedrin, he's the leader of the 70 religious leaders who oversee all of Israel. This guy's a big deal. He's the the old school Jewish pope, in a sense, the, the figurehead of the religious movement. It says that the historians tell us that when he asked him that question, as I stand on one foot, tell me, what is the message of the Torah? That he became angry with him and chased him away with a club. He then went to this second rabbi, Shammai, who was far more conservative, less liberal than this other one, and and who held on to the scriptures very tightly. And when he asked him the same question, as I balance on one foot, summarize the whole thing. That rabbi Shammai, he responded and said, the sum of the Torah is this, that what is hateful for you, don't do it to anyone else. That is the message of the Torah. It's funny because as I Googled the story just to kind of verify it, because I remember hearing it years ago and I wanted to find it in these ancient writings. What I found was it in the ancient writings, but I found it there. But I also found a lot of modern rabbis still in the 21st century identifying with one of these two responses. They either dig the guy with the club and say, yeah, no one should ask us to summarize it because it's too deep, too profound. We could never discover the essence of it all because it's too complex what God is asking. While others say, no, the summary is great. Don't treat the world terribly. Don't treat the world spitefully. No, no, don't do that. That's, that's the point of it all. What's hateful for you, don't do it to anyone else. Still, people are divided. Listen, it's the question. It's not a new one. It's, it's the question that was a hot topic and debate even in Jesus' day, and this question is still under debate, not just by modern rabbis, but by our modern Western world today. If you ask people around you, what is the essence of Christianity? You'd get a whole bunch of different answers. You probably wouldn't like many of them, though. If you went to a typical San Diegan today and said, what's your perception of the essence of Christianity? Some would probably say, well, probably knowledge. Because Christians seem to have the opinion that they just know more and have an answer for everything or being in the know. Others might say perfection is the essence of Christianity. Striving and arriving at perfection. Others would say it's moralism. It's that if you can't be perfect, at least try hard and be better than others. Some might say it's a delusion. That's the essence of Christianity. That it's just this mindless myth. The essence of Christianity, well, maybe it's faith. Maybe it's the weight of Christianity setting on your shoulders like a crushing weight of pressure to believe and never waver. Others would say it's manipulation or fear. It's fear of judgment, of hell. It's fear of God and and what might happen. The essence of Christianity, others might say it's obedience. Just to follow the list of requirements, some would say it's pressure. Some would also say it's homophobic or dilapidated, that it's fatalistic. Maybe some would argue, no, it's not at all. It's peaceful. It's joining together, singing kumbaya and celebrating the fact we'll all be okay one day. Others would say it's extortion. It's corruption. It's a scam. It's mind control. It's make-believe. It's a myth. It's an adaptation. It's a contradiction. Those are all things I found on Reddit threads this week when people were answering the question of what's at the heart of Christianity. What is its essence? 
This is what they came asking Jesus. What's the biggest, the most important, the essence of it all? What's the one thing that if you removed it, the whole of the thing would no longer exist? What would God say he's after? What's the meaning of life? What's the message and the point of the Christian message itself? And Jesus responded, boiling it down even further than the prophets of old had ever done before, making it even more simple. And what did he say? He said, the essence of Christianity is love. You know, as we worship today, I just started thinking about it again. It's amazing when you think of all the other religions in the world, so many of them, their mantra is compliance. Their essence is compliance. It's yielding. At the center of it is maybe enlightenment, but that enlightenment is, is connected to strict adherence. It's obedience. It's compliance. But Christianity is so different in that it's love. Jesus says it's love in response to God and his love for you. And then Jesus said it's love that then is directed back to God, but also is directed towards the lives of other other people around you. So what is the answer to the question? Well, the answer to the question is love God and love people. In fact, Jesus responds by quoting from the great Shema, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, and it'll pop up on the screen for you, but the great Shema, it means, Shema is a Hebrew word that means to hear, but to hear with intention of doing something. I, like I said, I have littles in my house. I know sometimes they hear me when I say, just as an example, Keegan, go to your room and clean your room. It looks like a tornado went through it. And and he may go to his room, and when I come in 20 minutes later, I go, what are you doing? You're just playing with toys. I thought I told you He may have heard me, but he had no intention of doing what he heard. We understand this concept, but to hear with intention of doing, the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols around your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on door frames of your houses and on your gates. What does he tell them? He says, this is what I want you to hear and do, to love the Lord your God. In fact, this is something that pious Jews still today recite twice a day. And that was the way it was back in Jesus' day. Every morning and every evening, they would recite this in their homes as a family. In fact, as a family, they would place small boxes. You've probably seen these before. Mezuzah, I believe, is the word that they'd place on the doorpost of their home. And inside it would house this little passage, a mini little printed out scroll that they'd put there in a modern setting, not printed back then. But they still do it today. It's, it's you'd see an Orthodox Jew even today with a leather bracelet wrapped around their wrist in their hand that's to serve as a reminder of this. You might even have seen someone with a, a headband that has a little box that they would wear and they would place the scriptures inside the little box. This was the pinnacle statement of the Old Testament in the minds of many Jews and still is today. That you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. But Jesus added a fourth thing to it, didn't he? Which would have turned the heads of every person who said it twice a day. He also included the mind. So love God with those four things. Think about those things. The heart, it's a Hebrew word that speaks of desire. It's telling you, make him your desire. It's your your thinking and feeling. It's your innermost being. Make him your delight. Love him with your heart, with your soul. It's your emotion. It's, It's the Hebrew word that communicates your life force. 
I mean, even those in the 21st century context that we live in, even outside of a religious context, they, they use terms uh, that, that speak to this being a reality. They, they use terms of burnout and the need for soul care. We understand the idea of the soul is the life force and the drive inside of each of us that we need to tend to, that we need to maintain. And it's saying here, let Jesus himself, let God himself be your driving force, the thing that you are most passionate in life. Not an alarm clock that gets you out of bed in the morning, but a calling that gets you out of bed to know Jesus and to make him known. Oh, not just love him with your heart and your soul, but with your strength. It's speaking of action. The Hebrew word is speaking of your body, that you love him with your eyes, with your ears, with your hands, with your feet. It holds kind of a secondary implied meaning here of love him with all that you do, with every action that you choose to take, with your gifts, your talents, your strengths, the resources that God has entrusted to you. Love God with all of that, it's saying, every physical thing that you've been given the opportunity to steward. Love him with your heart, your soul, your strength, and Jesus adds your mind. It's your thoughts. It's, it's, it's your, your ability to process, to engage your mind in the deep things of God, your, your logic, your rational. You need to think about this because the Greeks had come along and idolized thinking, idolized the intellect. And so the move culturally was to divorce itself from a pagan culture. And so many of the Jews were demonizing the idea of the mind being able to be redeemed and the mind being such a useful thing. And Jesus kind of pokes at their culture, telling them he's not asking people to be mindless at all or to be anti-intellectual. He's pushing on them. Love God with your feelings, with everything you have and with your mind for sure. Now, Jesus' point here is not to have us develop some fourfold thinking about a fragmented view of ourselves where we're all of these different. No, we are one complex entity, not segmented or fragmented. If you are unwell emotionally, it will affect you physically. If you're physically tired, it makes you grouchy. It affects your emotions. We understand this very simply. We are one complex entity, but what Jesus is pointing out here is that God wants each aspect of that complex being that you are. And for all of us, that means that we'll all need to be attentive to certain areas then in our lives that probably are different. For me, you, you know if you've been here long, like, well, Trevor's a little bit nerdy. He often admits that and then apologizes for it. Like, for me, it's a natural act of worship for me to give God my mind. I love to learn and I express passion to God or, or, or for God in my study of scripture and, and thinking deeply about him. But what that means for me is that I must be attentive and intentional and being very certain that I also give God my heart that I express adoration and passion for him and deep emotion and through worship. Because there's a danger for a person like me that I'd become a passionate learner instead of a passionate lover of Jesus. That's the danger. And that's why I read this and go, I need to love him with my heart. Because it's second nature for me to love him with my mind and with my strength to be motivated and driven to live for Jesus for sure. But I don't want to do that detached from a deep love and passion that's a connection with Jesus. My wife's different than that. My wife puts up with my nerdiness. It's not how she's wired. She naturally engages with Jesus in a heartfelt, compassionate, passionate way. 
For her, she's drawn towards worship music. I get alone on my day off, and I typically am driving in silence because I'm still processing things. She gets in a car without our children, and she turns on worship music to sing. Like, I, I get alone, and, and I'm very different than she is because of the way we're naturally wired and bent. But what it means for me is that when I'm alone on my day off, that I intentionally read something that's not just stimulating my mind, that's not about leadership growth, so it's not about my mind or my strength, but it's things that have to do with my heart. Because I know my weakness, my Achilles heel, is that I have to be aware of the fact that, that it's harder for me to engage my heart than it is for me to engage my mind and my strength. And so I read things that just speak to my heart in those moments. For me, on my desk, I have a, a note in front of my computer screen that just says, having a deep passion for the church or for ministry does not necessarily translate into a passion for Jesus and certainly does not translate into intimacy with him. I'm aware that I need to engage my heart with a person and not a cause. My friends, I realize that's my Achilles heel, and all of us have to take the time to realize what what is it about our lives that we need to intentionally engage when it comes to our loving relationship with God. I, I must love Jesus with my heart, with all of my heart, me personally for Trevor, not just with my mind or my strength, my passionate drive to serve him and to do things for him. All the while I can do those things, engage my mind and be so driven while foolishly failing to engage my heart in a loving, driven way to fall deeply, more deeply in love with him each and every day. It's easy and natural for me to engage my mind and my strength, but it's difficult, more challenging for me to choose to engage my heart. All of us, I think, need to have the self-awareness to realize, where is it that Jesus challenges me in these areas? This past year, at the end of the year in December, I got alone uh, with the Lord and just sat thinking through things. And one of the questions I found myself asking was, if I'm leading and people are following as I follow Jesus, and if enough time goes by and I look back, what will I see? What will we see as a church? If people begin to follow Jesus the way that I follow him, what will we find as a church? And I'll tell you the top of my list I wrote Uh, just as I journaled and thought through these things and prayed through them, I just said, God, I don't want to just find Bible nerds. Because I do want you to love the Bible like I do. But if that's all I produce, then we have fallen so far short of who we ought to be. At the top of my list, under that note, I just wrote number one, I want to see, as I look at our church five years from now, Jesus lovers. Number two, who hear from God personally. Number three, who are determined to walk out their own calling personally. Number four, who have passion for Jesus, not a cause, not even just for his book, not at all for some weird form of brand loyalty even to our church, just passion for Jesus. And number five, people who passionately love their neighbors self-sacrificially. That is what we want as a church. What's the essence of Christianity? It's to love in response to God's love for you. And it's a love that's directed at God, but also at others. Jesus' second thing is he says, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting from the book of Leviticus. And it'll pop up on the screen because it's important that you and I understand the context of what he says here. In Leviticus chapter 19, beginning in verse 9, he doesn't just tell you, Moses doesn't just tell you to love your neighbor. He shows you what it looks like to actually love your neighbor when he writes. Leviticus chapter 19, beginning in verse 9, he says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. 
You shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Okay, picture the imagery. You go out to harvest your field. He's saying, leave the corners. Don't bother with them. And when grain falls, as you're collecting all, don't go back for it. As you're harvesting your grapes, leave the ones that fall. Don't feel like you have to get them all. Leave them there to care for the poor and the foreigner, the stranger, the refugee. You shall not steal, verse 11, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another, and you shall not swear by any name falsely or, or my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of the Lord or your God, I am the Lord. You shall not cheat your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf nor put a stumbling block before the blind, nor sh but shall fear your God, I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in judgment, you shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go about as a talebearer amongst your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It's lengthy, I know, to read you that passage. And maybe you're like, why in the world did you read it? Because think about what it's saying. In the same way that Jesus expresses in this fourfold explanation of how you are to love God, he doesn't just tell you, feel something for God. It's more than an emotional experience or connection that Jesus is pushing for in your love for God. But your love for neighbor is also much more than an emotional tolerance or even emotional appreciation of other people. And the people who are hearing Jesus respond that way, they know what Leviticus says. They know the context. They know that this is the kind of love that he's pushing them towards. Love for neighbor means that it's a love that physically gives, even physically gives things that would cost your own home. Physically give that which you grow on your property or that which you have and own in your home. To give that away, that physical property, means that you have less. But that's how you love your neighbor as yourself. It's passionate, soul-filled drive to protect the life and even the dignity of those who are disrespected and disregarded. Did you catch this? Where he talked about the treatment of the poor and the blind and the deaf. It's you feeling like me loving my neighbor right now is speaking up that that Russians should not all be demonized, that it's wrong if we just are talking about Russian people or if we're interacting with people in our community and you're Russian, that means you're, or it's us brushing off the Ukrainian who right now is being discarded by so many and acting as if they're just a commodity or that they're not that important, not as important as the rest of us because our lives mean more. It's the widow who's on food stamps right now being driven towards them with compassion. It's loving with my mind and my heart. When I choose, he even brings up forgiveness. When I choose to forgive them for how they've wronged and harmed me. They've harmed my reputation, maybe, my career path, my emotional well-being, but I'm willing to forgive. That's what love for neighbor looks like. Well, well who then is the them? Who am I supposed to love like this? And a man once asked Jesus that very thing, didn't he? And it's a strikingly similar story that some commentators even say is the same exact story that we're being, have recorded for us here in Mark chapter 12 that's found in Luke's gospel where the conversation begins with a man coming saying, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you should love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And wanting to justify himself, he says, well, then who then is my neighbor? 
And Jesus launches into the story of the Good Samaritan. I would tell you, I don't think it's a parable. I think it's a real story. And Jesus uses it as an indictment against him and the crowd, the religious leaders around him. And in the end, in that story, if you know it, the answer of who is my neighbor is not, whomever is neighborly to me first counts as my neighbor. That's who I need to treat this way. Or whoever loves me first, that's who I need to love. Or whomever I share things in common with, common interests, common ethnicity, uh, common economic status with, that's who I'm to love, not at all. The answer is everyone. Even those who have not loved you, even those who have nothing in common with you, dare I say, even those who hate you, who are your enemies. You know, of all the people in the world, Christians should be the most caring of people because we are the most cared for of people. The sad thing is that's just not often the truth. And in the story of the Good Samaritan, you might remember that the individuals who pass him by as the man, the, the, the Jewish man is, is beaten and left for dead, the people who pass him by are a priest and a Levite. It's the Samaritan, their sworn enemy, who stopped to care for him. A priest and a Levite passed him by. It illustrates the reality that sometimes the people who spend the most time in church show the littlest interest for the person with the greatest need. Sometimes the people who spend the most time in church can show the littlest interest for the person with the greatest need. Just because we're here in a church gathering doesn't mean we're living the way God is wanting me to live or doing what he's wanting me to do or even imply that I share his heart for the world just by being here. But we ought to be the most caring of people because we are so incredibly cared for by a good and gracious God. What does it look like to love neighbor? It looks like the guy of the, the church in Ukraine that I told you we're supporting right now who could come back to Indiana because that's where he's from, but said instead, myself, my wife, and our children have chosen to stay because we ought to serve, because we can't abandon our post, because if we don't do it, who will? That's what it looks like to love neighbor. Those aren't even his countrymen. This is not even his fight. Why not come back and be safe? Because if we don't do it, who will? Because while other organizations and nonprofits will flee, the church is meant to stay and to stand. It's the followers of Jesus in Hungary that I told you about in Budapest. It's not just a church that's opened its building to house refugees, but it's the people who are going out in the streets and greeting those refugees and saying, you belong in my home tonight and as long as you need to be. And taking food off their shelves in front of their children to show the example, this is what it looks like to love neighbor. They are not our countrymen. They are our neighbor who Jesus has commissioned us to love. My friends, it's many of you who we don't have a ministry for our widows but it's many of you who love because you're a minister and you know it's what you're supposed to do. And so you care for our precious Mary Lee and for others in our church that you look in on and look after. That's what this looks like to love neighbor. You see, we can blame people like Ludwig Feuerbach for his impact in pushing the Western world into a post-Christian era. But we as the church have to realize, we have to pause for a moment and realize that we played a part that we were culpable, we were responsible for the fact that he and the world around him had experienced followers of Jesus who had a love that was vertical but never was horizontal. Because we, the church, can still be guilty of this. The world around us expects us to be loyal to God, doesn't it? But it also expects out of us that we're going to be harsh towards them. Experience has built that expectation in our culture. Let's change that. Let's have the world be the one that stands up with Jesus and says, the essence of Christianity is love because they'll love 
the people that no one would love. They'll love when no one else remained to love. They'll love even when they get nothing out of loving. Please hear me say you can't say that you love God unless you're also willing to love your neighbor as yourself. And I would argue that you'll find that you're unable to effectively love your neighbor as yourself unless, please hear me, unless you are consistently experiencing the transforming power of God's gracious, unmerited, self-sacrificial love for you. You've got to do this, but the only way you'll be able to is by keeping it in this proper order of loving God first, experiencing that loving union with him. And when you experience that kind of gracious, self-sacrificial love that he gives to you, you can reflect and, and you can give that out to other people around you. Our culture right now says the opposite of love is intolerance. It's not. We, we're so, uh, we're, we're such big fans of affirmation right now as a culture. It's become what we expect of love, affirmation. So we give participation trophies to our children. We say that truth is relative to our adults, where it might be wrong for you, but it's not wrong for someone else. And then our culture demands acceptance at any and all costs. But the opposite of love is not intolerance. It's not refusing to affirm every decision that every person makes. The opposite of love is hatred, and hatred's final form is indifference. Hatred's final form is indifference. It's not caring. It's not speaking up. It's just sitting quietly by. It's failing to care and to speak up. It's failing to care and to engage with a broken world. We cannot say we love God if we're unwilling to engage with a broken world and even a broken next-door neighbor. Our problem that we observe in our own lives is that we have a natural bent and, and, and tendency inside of us because of our sinful fallen nature that's not love for God and love for people. Our natural bent is now injustice. My love for my neighbor naturally pales in comparison to my own personal love for my comfort, for my preferences, for my self-preservation, for myself. My natural, my natural identity, my, my natural bent and tendency is now not just injustice, but it's idolatry. Yeah, it's a love for God and a love for my other gods. And you can know what your idol is based on what you're willing to sacrifice to in your life. And we're too smart to have little stone objects or mini wooden images. Now we sac our family, sacrifice our family to our careers. We sacrifice healthy priorities in our lives to take a step forward into a nicer neighborhood. We sacrifice morality uh, to the God of our sexuality. We sacrifice our allegiance and love for God for the admiration of people. The idol of today is no longer a statue that we carve. It's status that we crave. And like every other idol before it, our modern idol still demands its sacrifice. And in the middle of all of that brokenness, Jesus stands and says, the essence of Christianity is love. Our world would no doubt define it differently. They would say that the essence of Christianity, it's... But what does your life, as a follower of Jesus, say about the essence of Christianity? Not your thoughts, not just your words, but what's your life example, your actions, your activity? What does it say Christianity's true essence is? Jesus said it's love. It's love in a response to the love that God gives to you. And it's love that's directed towards God and towards other people. In a parallel passage, Jesus would, at the end of that statement, say, on these two things hang all of the law and the prophets. Think of it like a mobile over a crib where two cords are hanging it from the ceiling and off of it hang all of these other little things. In the same way, if I love God, if I love people, I won't murder. 
because I love God and, and God has made man in his image and loves them. So I don't want to harm God, nor do I want to harm someone else because I love them too. It's I won't commit adultery because I love God and he knows and sees and it would break his heart. And I love other people like my wife and I don't want to damage and break her heart. And so I'm not going to do that. It's, it's that I'm not going to covet my neighbor's possessions. Instead, I'm going to celebrate what he has that I don't because I love God who gave him that and has infinite wisdom and in not giving it to me. And because I love my neighbor as myself and I'm willing to rejoice when he has those things that I don't have and those comforts that maybe I long for. Like a mobile over a crib, everything else, the law is fulfilled in this, that you'd love God and love your neighbor. It's the essence of Christianity. Why don't you close your Bible? This is the beauty, is that our love is a response to God's love for us, that he'd never ask us to do something that he hasn't already done himself. He loved us when we were in rebellion against him. He loved us and gave himself for us when we were sinners, scripture says, at enmity with him. Jesus was the rich young ruler who had much to give up. But the one who was defined that way, who came to Jesus, he decided not to give up what he had, his wealth, his power, his influence, his comfort, his security. Jesus, however, decided to give up everything, the glories of heaven, to set his authority and power aside to come and to suffer for us. Jesus only requested that we give up our rights and what we're entitled to after he gave up all of his rights and what he was entitled to. And he did that even when we didn't deserve it. So we should not be surprised when we undoubtedly Find ourselves in moments having to love people as Jesus has loved us, loving people who don't deserve it and who won't ever earn it. But in our story, did you notice how it finished? It finished with it. It's just a final statement in verse 34 where it says that Jesus says to the man, you're not far from the kingdom. Jesus is telling him, I brought you all the way to the door. Because think about it, he knows everything he needs to know. Jesus just summed it all up for him. He knows everything he needs to know, but now it's his choice. Will you do this? Will you follow Jesus if what it means is being connected in a loving relationship towards God, receiving that love and directing that love back to God and towards other people, having it go vertical and horizontal? The, the man knows everything he needs to know, but now is left with a choice. And Mark has this way of doing this again and again in stories. Maybe you've already noticed this is kind of his calling card, isn't it? That he ends stories abruptly, and he does it intentionally to leave you in tension. It's so that the reader, the recipient of this, feels the tension of what did that man do? We don't know. But what will this man do is the question. You see, Mark intentionally, it's a linguistic form that he uses, a tool that he uses again and again masterfully in his book to leave us in tension where we're on the cliffhanger going, well, what happened? The reason he leaves us in that tension is because the answer is not what happened with that person and how did they respond. We're meant to step into their shoes and realize that this is a confrontation between Jesus and me. This is a moment between Jesus and me. The question is not what did he do. I'm meant to feel the tension of Jesus, what will I do? Will I choose to live so counterculturally to the world around me? Will I choose to love God and to love others as a first priority? Will I choose to follow the way of Jesus, even if it costs me so much, even if it means I don't realize some of my dreams here on this earth? Am I willing to do that? 
You and I are meant to find ourselves today standing before Jesus as this man, answering the question, what will we choose? You answering the question, what will you choose? And Jesus, you're worthy. Jesus, you're good. Jesus, you've been loving, self-sacrificially, graciously loving us while we were still sinners, while we were broken. You gave love for us. Jesus, you are worthy. Jesus, you are good. Father, we're sorry. God, we're repentant of of being a part of a church, the church, your bride, who's so precious to you and is meant to reflect for the world your goodness and image, that your image, your shadow would be cast on the earth through us, your people, those who are bearing the image of God. We are not just your bride, but we are your body that you still want to work on the earth through. Father, we repent that we've fallen short of that at times. Father, we repent that we've earned you a reputation that isn't fair. And Father, we're asking that you would reshape our lives and use us to change the stigma, to change the perception, to change the understanding that people have by experience of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, the essence of Christianity. We pray for co-workers that are represented in this room, for neighbors who find themselves next door to these families who are here. God, for family, for friends, for relationships in this community, as they interact with us, may they walk away understanding that love is the essence. Love is what it's all about. That if that was removed, that nothing would be left of what Christianity is without love. Jesus, use us to to treat others as as you have treated us. Holy Spirit, empower us to do that as we experience the kind of grace and love, compassionate care that you give us each and every day. Father, we slow down to partake of communion together in the next couple of moments because that's what is the ultimate reminder of the kind of love that you have for us. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.